You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Well, today, since it's Columbus Day, just me, I'm Matt. I got a call from him this morning, and he was taking a three-day weekend, and he called from Somewhere along the Manistee River, so he just didn't think he'd have a very good connection to be able to do the show. So, but I think I could manage it on my own. I have uh, calling in, uh, actually the video. I, I'm sorry, I'm so used to radio, right? You know, uh, Tanya Matthews, who and I go back a long ways. Uh, she hosted one of my events a few years back, and now she's at Wayne State University doing the thing she loves: STEM, science, technology, <laughs> engineering, and math. And that's because you're now at the new Wayne State STEM Innovation Center, right? Yes. How are you, Mike? Yes, the STEM Innovation uh, Learning Center. Uh, that's uh, one of the newest additions to the Wayne State University uh, campus uh, and offerings. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit. I think it's only six months old. Is that right? Um, the building itself? No, the building is, I don't know, approximately four days old. Oh, <laughs> we, uh, okay. All right. uh, and, and counting. We actually had a virtual ribbon cutting on uh, October the 1st, um, which is sort of the celebration of the major completion. Uh, and anyone who ever has done a major project realize the uh, punch list goes on for, for quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but we have been working on it uh, since um, in construction um, for uh, 10 months, which which was a radically quick construction uh, schedule when you just look at all we've been able to accomplish. And uh, you came on board, I think, maybe that's my confusion. You came on board about six months ago, I believe. So I came on board um, about a year uh, and six months ago. Oh, yeah. boy, I'm way off, way off. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. I have to no, fire no my problem. producer, you know, so. Uh. Not a problem. I think maybe uh, it's that uh, this is a project that was six years in the making. Um, it is a reclaiming of the science and engineering library uh, for our uh, warrior uh, alumni who are out there. And we transform that facility uh, with a major uh, renovation into a 21st, dare I say, 22nd century uh, STEM learning facility. So we've got mixed labs, mixed classrooms. Everything is mobile and dynamic for a collision of majors, uh, students and faculty. So we're very excited. All right. So uh, how big is it? Uh, I know it's a new facility. What are this, how many square feet are we talking well, I will, I will say this. It is 100,000 square feet, which is a lot less space than you think it is when we're yeah. trying to, to fit that in. So all along the, uh, um, the Warren Street side, we've got labs um, on uh, six different uh, floors. And then on the Gullen Mall University campus facing side, um, we've got dynamic classroom spaces. Um, one cool thing about the structure is we've got what is called virtual desktop infrastructure, part of Wayne State's um, burgeoning learn anywhere philosophy, which means that students can bring in any device, um, laptop, tablet, et cetera, and the building can actually push uh, the technology, uh, the software to the student um, on their devices, allowing us to have computer labs um, and lecture rooms is actually the same room in addition to uh, the biochemistry, chemistry, biology, physics and engineering lab spaces that we have in the facility. So this is open to uh, any Wayne State students, I assume, or I imagine a lot of them want to take some kind of STEM class, right? Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. So, of course, it's open to all of our undergraduates and we're welcoming our graduate students in as well. Um, a lot of our, say, Wayne Experience courses or our general education courses allow for all students um, to, to take, say, a physics class. Hey, some philosophy majors want to take some physics. Um, it's related uh, to the way our brains conceive the world. And that's also what we're hoping for, right? Um, we built the space to be um, so um, dynamic and usable and multifaceted that we're hoping students across all disciplines um, feel welcome in the space. Um, but we also did specifically design for the way that STEM students learn. We tend to learn in groups, right? Um, groups that talk loudly, groups that need whiteboards, <laughs> groups that need um, computer screens for themselves. And so what's unique about the facility is it's designed also with that in mind, as opposed to quiet individual study. We've got several collaboration zones and the STEM commons that really reflect the way that students in those. History, uh, physics, and calculus. And then my sophomore year, I became a liberal <laughs> arts student. So uh, I, I have a lot of respect for people. I mean, the, the physics course alone was, uh, you know, wow. So, uh, mm -hmm. but organic chemistry, I took a year of that. Oh. But I mean, it was a good grounding for what I'm doing now. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. it gives me a basic flavor. And of course, since then, I've written so many stories. I've done so many interviews. I feel like I've got a master's degree now in STEM just because I've talked to everybody about it, various experts, so like yourself. So um, what are the kind of the plans going forward now? You've got mm -hmm. this great facility. You're opening it up to other students. What's next? Yeah, so of course the immediate plans are safety and science first, right? So we're all still in the throes of thinking through um, what the current pandemic and sort of those kinds of things uh, mean for us. But moving beyond that, um, we are thinking about what kind of classes um, will work best uh, in the building as well as what kind of classes will contribute to the culture that we want in the building. And so our STEM courses um, are looking at uh, the courses that attract students from multiple disciplines. We're also actually trying to lean in a little bit into your world. We want to um, be able to have science and society conversations. We even want to consider the ways that STEM can be used to tackle social justice. Um, in addition to thinking about our own strategies around inclusion, um, but the building also has some incredible presentation spaces. So we're hoping that faculty and students will think about the STEM Innovation Learning Center, uh, how to do a mini symposium, or perhaps displaying some of the research or the projects that we've done just as part of the quote unquote decoration of the space. And I'm happy uh, to report we are currently working with um, the, uh, the chief curator for Wayne State's art collection to actually curate art uh, inside um, the building so we can really get authentic in this conversation around STEAM. So for us, that's going to mean arts and culture, but it's also going to mean humanity um, as we think about the way that science impacts our world and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do a lot of these stories on uh, the enormous amount of openings there are for people that are trained in, of course, now you added A for uh, arts, so it's STEAM rather than STEM, but science, technology, engineering arts tends to be architecture and things like that. Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. could be humanities, and of course, math. Um, and I've, I've seen different statistics. I'm not sure how many there are in the States, but I think there's tens of thousands of openings right now. So hopefully uh, this innovation center at Wayne State is going to help fill some of those slots, I think, right? Absolutely. That's definitely what we're going for, um, not only to increase the number of students who are interested in STEM, STEM-related fields, um, but also to increase the number of students who understand that they are capable of STEM, STEM-enabled businesses, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that the STEM Innovation Learning Center um, is also committed to is becoming another hub for K-12 on Wayne State's campus. So we will, of course, be reaching back and making space and room for our various summer camps uh, and places to collaborate, as well as, you know, places for young people to also display uh, the kinds of things that they are, that they are interested in. Um, and frankly, one of our biggest assets for those who may sort of uh, troll the website 
is it's a really cool looking building, right? So I can imagine uh, that we may be able to attract some students just because we've got really cool space and cool space implies cool classes. Um, so at least to give everyone um, some kind of fundamental kind of grounding um, uh, in, in some STEM or some science or tech, uh, much to the way you described how your freshman year turned out to be valuable after all. Yeah, well, like grade point average wasn't so great after my freshman year, but I made up for it. <laughs> a lot of work in the next few years to come. But mm -hmm. uh, certainly I think because even, well, when I was a student, we were riding dinosaurs, right? But I mean, uh, nowadays, I can't imagine anybody in the workforce not having some kind of STEM kind of training background, understanding, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I mean, it's just vital right now, I think. Do you? I'm sure you agree, right? You know, I definitely agree. And I think we're getting better um, at that language, right? So there's classic, classic STEM, classic STEAM, you know, that kind of business. And then there are those who simply know how to use the, the STEM and really we're referring to technology and engineering tools that they need to get their job done. And then there are those who know enough to know what tools to ask for and to, and to use, right? So you don't necessarily have to be an app developer to understand that you're a customer would want to be able to um, engage with you uh, via an app. So just enough to know about sort of the strengths and the possibilities. Um, but hey, this is this is Detroit. This is Michigan. You know, we build stuff, right? I, I think that we are a state that is uh, designed uh, for this and we like to be creators and we like to be builders. Um, that's just part of our culture. And I think now we are creating and building with the tools of STEM. And so I think really getting folks to to understand that this is not the realm of genius. This is the world of determination. Uh, and I hope that the STEM Innovation Learning Center can really help people engage uh, with that idea. Now, I know uh, it, it, previously you worked uh, with the STEM Anista program at the Michigan mm -hmm. Science Center. Are you hoping to do something similar in this program? Well, I'm definitely hoping um, that the STEM Innovation Learning Center becomes known for welcoming and bringing in the unusual suspects. Um, that's going to, of course, include girls. That's also going to include um, African-Americans, um, black and brown people from all kinds of uh, demographics, as well as our first generation students, um, first generation in college, and dare I say, first generation STEM. Uh, I myself am technically a second generation uh, college uh, student, but I'm first generation STEM. Uh, when I started out in engineering, the rest of my family kind of gave me a good luck nod um, as sort of the, the end of where they could support. Um, but I think that that is, that is really important. Um, and it's part of the way I want to continue to engage with partners. You know, Wayne State has um, a growing um, community of, of partners that we use from Detroit Public Schools to still the Michigan Science Center, actually to uh, Tech Town, one of our own facilities and different folks in the community um, who are working with, um, you know, folks from these um, underrepresented uh, communities, we like to refer to them as. And you can see a bit of that if you watched our uh, virtual ribbon cutting. So I'm very excited to think about what those kind of programs look at look like at this level right now. Okay, you know, uh, you've been on my show before. We're now at that yes. shameless plug point where you've got oh. a minute here to plug uh, what you're doing and provide uh, information about how people can reach out to you. So take it away. Absolutely. So one, uh, the website is up, stem-innovation.wayne.edu. It's where you can uh, keep up with us and see things that are going. We've got some cool projects coming um, with co-partner Detroit Public School uh, Community District and launching some K-12. Um, we will also be uh, piloting a National Science Foundation grant that is particularly for women, STEM entrepreneurs, and small business owners. Uh, to your question, thanks for that that lead in, uh, Mike. And of course, just kind of uh, stay tuned um, in terms of thinking about how to virtually engage um, with, the, uh, with the building and the programs. We are also going to be the Detroit hub for the 2021 Invention Convention. Yes, Hello. we still invent in the time of COVID. So All those right. are the things that we have got uh, coming. If you just go to the website, stem-innovation.wayne.edu.
All right, well, we'll have to bring you back on the show to talk about that event there, the 2021 Innovation, what was it Invention, called? Invention Convention, absolutely. You can bring me on with my counterparts at the Henry Ford. All right, sounds wonderful. Thanks for being with us today, Tanya. It's been it's good to see you again. It's good to see you too, Mike. All right, take care. We'll be back shortly with Bill Meyer from uh, Ann Arbor Spark. He's going to be talking about how that accelerator works with entrepreneurs to um, – Hopefully, get their businesses off the ground. And uh, this is Mike Brennan. You're watching MI Tech TV. We'll be right back after this commercial break. As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. And we're back. Uh, Matt is off today, Columbus Day. So he's, uh, last I heard, he was up on the Manistee River when he called me this morning. So uh, I'm uh, flying solo, but I think we can manage. We have Bill Mayer. From Ann Arbor Spark uh, on the show today, and uh, you know, <coughs> your your title I think is what entrepreneurial program director, but I know I got it wrong, so give us the right title. <laughs> sure, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so I'm the vice president of the entrepreneur services team at Ann Arbor Spark. Okay, then uh, that that would make sense. Why don't you kind of define what that your responsibilities are, just real quick? Sure. So Spark um, has basically two fundamental halves. We have uh, the traditional economic development work that you see often. Uh, if you look at Ann Arbor, you see companies like Google or Barracuda Networks that have chosen, or KLA, that have chosen to open offices, uh, large campuses in Ann Arbor, but their actual headquarters is in California or somewhere else. And then you have companies, uh, you look at Domino's Pizza, for example, You know they have one of the largest uh, software development teams in the region. Or uh, Toyota Motor Company has a big R and D campus, or you know, Llamasoft or Duo Security. Um, those types of companies. Uh, so half of Spark works with the large companies, and then my half of Spark works with the little startups. Everything from pre-revenue up to five million dollars of annual revenue a year. Well, as, as an entrepreneur, I wouldn't consider five million dollars a a startup. But hey, what the heck? I guess that's a good definition. <laughs> yeah. We do uh, so, look for company, yeah. We do look for high growth companies that could, you know, break the ten million dollars of revenue threshold. Sure, sure, that would be nice. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the Ann Arbor ecosystem. Of course, you got the University of Michigan here, which is uh, the big driver. I mean, I worked in, Sil- in Silicon Valley, and Stanford played a similar role out there, uh, doing a lot of the basic research, and then in this, and then, then eventually getting into the tech transfer aspect of it where they're actually commercializing. And I'm, I'm, Michigan has the same relationship, and I know you work really closely with them, right? We do, absolutely. Yeah, the three main ways uh, that we see new companies be created is exactly what you just described. Faculty members and research researchers at the university uh, having some sort of invention and then you know licensing it out of the university to start up a new company. We also have students that launch companies, and then we have our private sector people that launch companies. All right. And then uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Spark program itself. Uh, now, as a disclaimer, I, I need to admit this, that I was admitted into the program before the pandemic took off, and then I was kind of distracted trying to save my company. So now I finally circled back around to starting to work with Bill again. So I wanted to make sure folks, uh, and as we progress, maybe I'll do some stories about how that's all worked out. But, it, but short of it, uh, your area is working with guys or women like me. And so what specifically can you guys bring to the table? 
Well, the first thing, you know, I, I'm an advocate, not just in my job, but, you know, personally, I grew up in Ann Arbor, left and then came back. Um, and I've had, you know, entrepreneurship as part of my entire career. And so if you look at Ann Arbor as a place to launch a tech focused startup company, it, it's going to be hard to find another place in the country that is uh, better than what you can find in Ann Arbor. And we refer to the ecosystem for entrepreneurship. So Spark is part of that. But we have, you know, a lot of different players and a lot of different entities and, and, you know, great people that make up the ecosystem. And just to give you a sense of the scope or excuse me, the scale of that ecosystem, you know, every year we provide intense spark provides intense services to over 200 uh, tech focused startups. We see on, in any given year um, in excess of 50 brand new companies launched every year. And that's really the the sort of most or the most leading indicator in terms of, you know, do we have a pipeline that could result in the next Duo Security or the next uh, Llamasoft? You know, that that's where we're trying to go with this. Um, and then we also watch the capital markets. So if you look at Ann Arbor, um, we have more venture capital raised here than anywhere else in the state. We had over 200 million raised in the last year. Uh, so, you know, that access to growth capital is really important. Because if the companies can't find it here, they'll go where they can find it. Silicon Valley, great example. We used to have a problem, you know, 10 plus years ago with companies having their investors tell them, look, you need to move this company to California if we're going to invest. You don't see that anymore. Um, you know, I, I was just, I heard an article this morning about, you know, with the wildfires and the insurance on housing going to up, you know, and the cost of housing and all that. They're saying, you know what, leave your company in the Midwest. It's uh, more efficient, good talent, cheaper to run, all that. And, uh, you know, we look at our companies downtown employing over 2,000 people at any given time and adding anywhere between 150 to four or 500 new jobs every year. So it's really a driver of economic vitality in downtown Ann Arbor. And so with that, uh, with that momentum that the ecosystem creates, you know, Spark has programs and I'll talk about those, but, you know, we we're really sort of amplifying a really good situation versus, you know, trying to create something out of nothing. So, right. you know, Go ahead. Oh, so Spark, you know, like I said, we're an economic development organization. So we're not the same as uh, some things like you might have heard of Y Combinator, an accelerator, or, you know, some of these privately run organizations, we actually have um, funding that we make available to anyone that's in our region if they meet a couple key criteria. If they're commercializing a technology or an innovation, if it's actually a product, um, just hard service offerings, are, are they, they, we can't work with those. They don't uh, achieve the scale we're looking for of that 10 million. And then based in the, in the local region, and we're looking for a strong team. So the team has to be able to pull it off. And if you meet those criteria, then we can do things like, for example, we run an entrepreneur's boot camp uh, twice a year where you get a whole teaching team to put you through the rigors of customer discovery and kind of doing the fundamental validation work that every entrepreneur wants to do before they start putting money into a product. So um, that one, the next one is kick, kicking off in November. So you can look at our website if you're interested in our entrepreneur boot camp. We can make grants directly, well, not directly to companies. We can engage third parties to provide services to our companies. So if you needed something simple like a website stood up or some video content or some front end, you know, design work done or an integration or something like that, uh, we can potentially pay for that up to $50,000. Um, we also can sponsor people to go to the statewide business accelerator fund program. We can... Um, uh, match interns. So if you're going to take an intern on for a summer, we can pay for half of it. Um, we do specialized programs like we, uh, in conjunction with Eastern Michigan University, there's a faculty team that oversees uh, budding young marketing students that want to become marketing professionals and work with startups. So we have a whole summer program that trains them on the job as they learn the skills they need to be employable. Uh, we do something very similar with, uh, if you're familiar with the term XR, which is really virtual reality and augmented reality and everything else. So it teaches XR developers the ropes of working in that space. And then we also have a talent program that we call our Entrepreneur in Residence program. It's really designed to look at, uh, you know, pick somebody who successfully spun out of a company 
you know, I tell you what, the day Doug's song or John Oberheide uh, decides they've, you know, done what they could at Duo and comes out onto the market, I will respectfully ask them if they would be willing to become an EIR with Spark and help the next generation of early stage companies, you know, sort of impart their wisdom and learnings and how they raise capital and how they scale their operation. So, you know, that, that, that's just some of what we can do to actually, you know, move our companies forward and give them real help. Now, one of the things that my notes uh, you uh, stressed was A2 Tech 360. What is that all about? All right. So I'll take responsibility. Originally, this was my bonehead idea. But <laughs> the, thing, the thing that drove it was, you know, where you're, you're, sitting in, you're sitting in Liberty Park or on the Diag in downtown Ann Arbor, and you look around and, you know, you've heard that there's startup activity, but what does that really mean? Unless you're working inside the ecosystem, you know, this idea is, is, is it good to have startups? It, you know, I, it, there wasn't a lot of understanding by people. So what we did was we just created uh, the, in the first year, this thing called tech track. And so all of the downtown startups and tech companies, uh, this is the first year Google was downtown. That was really the brand name that sucked everybody in. But uh, you know, you got to just walk around with a map in your hands and go visit all these tech companies. So you could walk into Duo Security, you could walk into Llamasoft. I was trying to explain to my wife what Llamasoft does. She thought it was a farming operation. <laughs> she didn't understand that they build, you know, supply chain modeling software. Because why uh-huh. would you, right? You know. So um, and and you know things like Domino's Pizza. You think it's a food company? It's actually a software company that enables pizza. So you know, it it really sort of. Um, let people have a, a visceral understanding of what these companies are, what they do. And, you know, your neighbors, if you live in Ann Arbor, are working for these companies. You realize, oh, it's actually a group of really interesting people. And the hook was we invited the kids. You know, if you've got a, a, a junior high, high school or elementary school kid that loves science, math, you know, maybe would think about computer science or what engineering uh, when they go to college, they like to show off, this is what you could do afterwards. And so um, that went, that's gone really well. Uh, you know, we've been doing it for years and it's exploded into a tech week that comprises over 16 events. And this year we, uh, we it was the first time we did it virtually because of the COVID situation, but we pulled in over 4,000 attendees for the uh, different, um, the different uh, sessions and all the content represented from 37 states and 25 countries around the world. So it was it was pretty cool. All right. We only got a couple minutes left. So I know one of the things you wanted to talk about is some of the upcoming events, but you got to compress everything down in the next two minutes. So it's a really fast run through. I promise. Okay. We're sponsoring uh, one of the leading global uh, data science events in November called the Midas Conference. Uh, if you Google MIDAS, you can see what that's all about. Um, we're sponsoring a panel on employment in the data science field for students, or if you're just a data junkie, it's really interesting. Uh, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we're doing a thing called the Tech Homecoming. Parents and grandparents out there, if you have a child or grandchild that you want to somehow rope back and you know moving back to Michigan, here's your opportunity. We assemble a lot of employers that are hiring all sorts of different job positions and give people a chance to sort of meet and understand who are the people that are hiring in Michigan right now. So if you want to get the kids and grandkids back to Michigan, that's your event. And then, uh, and it's happening across the state. If you go to backtomichigan.com, you can see all of the, uh, the various smart zones and areas that are participating. And then the last thing is we're teaming up with Rich Sheridan, who's the found, one of the founders of Menlo Innovations and the CEO. Uh, it's called Resilient Leaders, and it's a uh, series on how to be a really excellent and outstanding leader to your employee and your organization. So if you go to annarborusa.org, you can uh, see that event, sign up for our event newsletter, and get all kinds of interesting free content from us. All right. Well, that saves me from asking where can people go to find more information. But go ahead and repeat that uh, the domain name address one more time. No problem. So there's there's two two domain names you want. Uh, one is annarborusa.org, and then the other one is a2spark.org/slash/360recap. And I'll send this to you, Mike, so you can put it up on your website. Both of those URLs will give you everything you need to know about upcoming events and a very nice overview of A2Tech 360. And you can uh, sort of watch the videos and see the companies after the fact. It's all free. 
All right, Bill Mayer, thanks very much for being on the show today. And just as a brief uh, sort of interesting point, his wife has been my yoga instructor for years. <laughs> it was just recently that I discovered they were married. I just never made the connection. So hi to Christy. All right. Of well, thanks course. for being on the show. Oh, yeah, say hi to me. And uh, we'll be right back uh, with Fred Brown. He's going to talk about the latest, uh, what's happening with healthcare in the COVID area. And he's going to be talking about the various vaccines that are in development. And hopefully that'll be what gets us all back to normal again, whatever that might be. So that you're watching MI Tech TV. And as I said, right after this commercial break, we'll be right back. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. We're back. All right. So uh, we were chattering away with uh, Fred Brown once again, our epidemiologist who has joined us. And he uh, most weeks is with us, occasionally has some family obligations or something, but he's here today. And I looked at his slide deck, and we're going to be talking about the various vaccine candidates in development. And most people, and I I think Fred would agree, and until we get a vaccine and get it widely disseminated around the world, we're never really going to get our arms around COVID-19, are we? That's right. Yeah, I think we're going to need to have a vaccine to come back what they consider normalcy. So we take it, take the vaccine, then you're able to go out and about in the and, and without worrying about things that worrying protective gear, you know, and we're pretty good at controlling the virus with protective gear. Uh, I mean, it's pretty effective, but just we don't wear enough of it. And it's hard to keep it going, you know, it's just tiring, to keep, always wearing a mask and everything. So vaccines definitely will be helpful. Yeah, I keep a couple in my car. I keep a couple by the front door. I mean, sometimes I forget to grab it on the way out. Uh, even when I go over to the office here where I live, I can't go in without a mask. And sometimes I get all the way to the door and I go, oh, I got the mask, you know, so yeah, I'll be happy to get past that. And of course, me being a big sports fan and a Michigan season's ticket holder, well, that's not happening this year. So we're waiting to see what's going to happen with basketball. Maybe maybe the same scenario, just the players on the floor and no people in the stands. But anyway, I digress. So vaccines, take it away, Fred. Vaccines. Uh, why don't I show you some of the things I've, I've been thinking about? And uh, I'm working, you know, full disclosure, I am working uh, with the government. Um, we have a special operation called Operation Warp Speed, and I do uh, help help that, that, that group out um, quite a bit. And so I'm going to, sh- I'll, I'll share with you what I can today. And then in two weeks, I'll be able to share a lot more because I'm going to get a, a, a big presentation together, um, together uh, and be able to share and, and get that released and allow, be allowed to talk much more generally. This is all uh, material um, that is basic immunology. So we're going to talk a little about basic immunology, uh, and that'll kind of prepare us for the more advanced discussions we'll have uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks uh, when they allow, allow me to talk in more. So let me see if I uh, – are you guys seeing everything so far? Yeah. Ah, perfect, perfect. So let me go to the slide view so we don't get confused. And um, – if you could take it full screen, we could, there we go. Yeah, it is. better that way. So go ahead. So this is, the, this is the landscape. We have 170 candidates. Typically for a disease at any given time, we'll have about nine. And why do you think we have so many candidates, Mike? Why, why, why do you think? Well, I think, strangely enough, they're all cooperating to begin with. And, of course, it's a worldwide pandemic. And so everybody and his brother is trying to get involved in finding a way to solve the problem, right? That's part of it. And the other part of it is we don't know what the heck we're doing. 
<laughs> I guess that really boils it down, doesn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish we could say, you know, it's this way and we're going to figure this out and this is the way we're going to go. But we, there are a lot of different approaches because we just don't know enough about this uh, about this virus. It's been it's only been around for a little while, as you know, uh, since January 11th, basically when we characterized it uh, in the DNA. And so we have all these different approaches there. there what's interesting is we have 170 plus candidates and about 350 exploratory approaches, but they all boil down to six to, depending how you define the science, six to eight approaches. And so these are the six approaches that uh, that this is what's published in Nature, uh, that people kind of talk about, uh, the five or six uh, approaches that we talk about. Um, and each of them have kind of positive and negatives. So the first one you hear about a lot about is the recombinant viral vector vaccine. Uh, and that's the one that J&J and, um, uh, and uh, 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 um, oh, AstraZeneca are doing, and they have a uh, basically what you do is you you, you take a you, you take a little uh, vi- uh, vector that you already have, adenovirus or something that causes colds or something that causes a disease in chimpanzees, as in the case of AstraZeneca, and you in you take out that uh, d- DNA of that of, of that of that virus and you put in uh, something that's going to create an antigen uh, for COVID. So something that's a COVID protein instead of a uh, adenovirus in this case or in the other areas. And there's some good things about this. The first is that we have, we know quite a bit about the virus vectors. There's some successful platforms out there for rabies and others. Um, we can deliver it through the mucosa. And we think that's going to be important for a respiratory virus, being able to sniff uh, the, the, the virus into the, the, the vaccine into you rather than inject it. We think could have some beneficial and but of course there's some risk in terms of the vector you choose. If you choose the wrong vector, it won't get in necessarily as efficiently as it should. It could be attacked by the by body itself. So there's some challenges about using this 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 vector. Uh, but we're pretty far along uh, in the in the J and J opportunity. We we should have a J and J vaccine if it's successful uh, out by the end of this year. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The nucleic acid base is, of course, the fastest one. And that's the Moderna and Pfizer ones. And Moderna and Pfizer could actually be out uh, in November uh, with, a, with an emergency use authorization. These are all assuming emergency use authorizations. Uh, and the problem is it's very unproven. Uh, we don't have any vaccines that have ever been discovered or, 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 or produ- produced this way before. And so we're, we're sort of rolling the dice here. But you can see all how fast it is. The vast majority of clinical development at, at, at phase three level uh, is, is in this is in the is in the blue color, and you can see how many there are, how many candidates there are just in this using this piece. What's interesting is, you know, if Moderna works, it's likely that Pfizer Pfizer will work. It's likely that that if, if Pfizer works, all the other uh, ones like this will likely work. And so, uh, it, but at the same time, if it fails, it's likely that the others will fail as well. So it sounds like we got a lot of candidates, but the truth is that if one of these whole platform technology fails early, chances are the other ones are going to have trouble too. So we don't have as much uh, diversity as, as necessarily we think we do having 170 different candidates, if that makes sense. Because everyone has the same spike protein, basically, in this little envelope, and they're trying to push it in uh, using a, different, a couple of different vectors, a couple of different lipid uh, pro- platforms, and that's all we got. Then we have the inactivated virus. The inactivated virus is one of our, you know, go-to ways of, of dealing with, 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 with viral diseases. And basically, uh, what you do is you is you take the virus as it is whole, you culture it up, and then you add chemicals to it, or you UV light it, or you heat it, and that changes the chemist, the, 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 it actually inactivates, it kills the proteins. The problem is that sometimes the proteins, when they start to denature, uh, start to change configuration as well. And so sometimes the antibodies that you're developing to the inactivated uh, uh, virus aren't necessarily the ones you're gonna need uh, against the real virus, because you know by definition it's been inact- inactivated. On the other hand, it's pretty, it's very safe because the virus has been killed. Um, but there is that chance of not having very good efficacy. Um, the strongest response actually comes up from live virus. What we do there is we actually take the virus at, at, in its live state. We don't kill it. We keep it alive, but we weaken it. And we weaken it so much that it mixes with the, uh, that, 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 it's not, that it's not virulent anymore. And then we create antibodies to that, uh, but a weakened virus. Now, the risk is, especially in coronavirus, that it, that it sort of sees a, a wild type, what they call a wild type coronavirus or original coronavirus out there. It, 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 it mates with that and it conjugates with that, uh, with, 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 the, with the wild type. And all of a sudden you got real virus again. 
And that's a real risk with coronaviruses, and it's called uh, is a kind of reversion of the virulence back to where, where it was originally back back to. That that it does create the strongest a- a- immune response, but it, but it also has the highest level of adverse events. So there's again, you know, positive and negatives. The final area is actually the sub uh, a protein subunit, and here this is the safest one. This is the one we're probably going to have to give to people who are immunocompromised. Uh, people who are very ill, because it um, it actually just takes small pieces of the virus, you break it all apart, and then uh, you take little pieces of the virus and you and you just inject that in, uh, rather than trying to get at something actively into the cells or trying to get uh, trying to use the, the, the cultured virus. So in the United States, when the United States decided to do this work, they decided they weren't going to do they weren't going to allow any culturing of the virus. So we don't have any. Uh, virus, any uh, thing going against live, with live attenuated or inactivated virus. Everything we're doing is in the nucleic acid, the recombinant, and, and, the, and the protein subunit. That's all we're, all we're working on in the U.S. So that kind of gives you a sense of all the different areas that, that you could work on. And when, well, as and now, now here comes the immunology part of this. Basically, if you look at what ha- what's happening with the virus, it's it's two things. The first thing is how much of an immune response your body, how, how, how much of an immune response and how fast your body is able to recognize the virus. And that's the left-hand axis here, broad relative immunogenicity, right? So on this, on this little score, if you've got broad immunogenicity, it means you recognize it fast, uh, it doesn't mutate much, and the protective duration of the, of the primary immune response is pretty strong. And so as you go up that axis from low to high, it gets better and better for us. At, but what the virus does is it moves pretty quick and it has, a, it has what they call an incubation period. So the faster the virus is able to get itself established versus your immune system, it can get, then get established and it, and, and, and it won't, won't matter. Your immune system is too slow, won't have the high ground, and won't, won't be able to defend your body. So that's what's happening. It's basically your immune response against how long it takes the virus to get established. And if you can, and if you can beat, if the, if you your body can beat the virus getting established, then you win the war. If you can't beat it, then the virus replicates and you spread it. And so you can see that generally we have very good. What the vaccines do is it gives your body a boost. It basically you know gives you a head start in the race to react to the to the attack of the virus. And you can see that basically here are the the, the squares indicate where we have successful vaccine. You can see it's all in the areas where it's taking the virus pretty long to get established and where we have a pretty high immune response. And you can see the flus back down here where it goes so quick that we don't have a chance to get ourselves, you know, uh, go, go after it. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and that's why we only have partially effective vaccines. HIV uh, and AIDS viruses change so fast, we don't get a chance to really establish themselves against them. And then you've got a whole bunch of viruses here and you can see where SARS is. And unfortunately, SARS is very much 80% like the COVID, the COVID that we're trying to fight. So here you can get a sense of, of, of where all the coronaviruses are, right? And we've got six, co- oh, we have, we have six COVID viruses, uh, I'm sorry, co- coronaviruses, four are colds, and we're not, we've never been able to create a, a vaccine against colds. And there's MERS and SARS, we still don't have a vaccine against them, and now we have the SARS-CoV-2. And you can see that it's right here in the square where it's, we're right on the edge of our capabilities for a vaccine. So we're not sure whether we're going to be able to get a good vaccine here. At least we're not way out here with malaria and HIV, uh, but it sure would be nice to be up here, you know, where we have mumps and measles and so on. So we've never developed, uh, the result of this is we've never developed anything against coronavirus or on a vaccine basis. The vaccine immune response has been weak to date. And uh, all we really know uh, so far is what we've done with about a thousand tests of humans and, and, and some macaque monkeys. And the problem with, a, with our immune response is it tends to be lower in the lungs as a result of the, uh, of the vaccine, not higher in the lungs. That's what we're thinking about this, about, this, about inhaled, inhaled vaccine eventually. Uh, so we might get a partially effective vaccine, but herd immunity is unlikely with these initial vaccines. And worst of all, the vulnerable patients may not be very responsive to these vaccines. So that sort of gives you a sense of the general immunology, what we're trying to look at here. And now let's see where we are. Uh, and so here uh, where the question is, gosh, we've got either, sadly, you can see we've got either very proven scalability in the vaccines or unproven scalability. And maybe next week or the week after we can talk a little bit about what I'm doing with Operation Warp Speed to improve, this, improve this, the scale distribution and administration of the vaccine in the future, because that's going to be a, a big challenge. But basically, you can see that the conclusion that we came to, this is back in January, was cocktail scenario. The fastest route to some control may be convalescent plasma 
and monoclonal antibodies, eventually creating a bridge to get into a vaccine. And that's what we were talking about back in January. So what's, what does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Basically, um, the con, it, it, uh, this is the immune, immune response, right? So you've got two different kinds of immune responses. The first one is just antibodies that are circulating in your, in, in your body normally. And that's the humoral response. And, and sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll latch up against some, uh, the COVID virus and they'll recognize it and it'll, it'll kill it just because it's no, it sees it as a foreign object. Now, what we've heard about is, is, is in convalescent plasma uh, and, and monoclonal antibody from President Trump was that basically this boosts your, the antibodies that are, wrote, are going around your body normally. So all of a sudden you get this special boost from initially the convalescent plasma is from other people who've been infected. So you take their blood, you spin it down, you take their plasma, and then you boost your own plasma levels of the antibody because you're getting theirs. And that, of course, means that you're going to be able to fight and, and react better when you get, uh, when you get the, 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 the disease. So we use it in two ways. One is you're a healthcare worker and you know you're going to get exposed every day. You might want to use this, what they call prophylactically. You might want to use it in advance before you even get into a bad situation with a patient. And so you're ready. And this, this, you, this, this effect usually lasts between three months and a year. Uh, and again, it drops. You know, over time, it starts to decline, so it wanes. Uh, because you're slowly losing, you're getting diluted, the antibodies get diluted and pulled out of the system. Um, the monoclonal antibodies actually are stuff that we produce. So we actually look, and fortunately in the plasma, you're getting everything. You're getting stuff that works, stuff that doesn't work, stuff that's very directed, stuff that isn't directed. And we're, what we're looking for actually is what they call neutralizing antibodies in that plasma. We isolate those antibodies, and then we synthesize just those special neutralizing antibodies. And basically what you're getting is what I call an immune system in the vial. So you put it in and you get your, yourself boosted up in the immune system and it's a bridge to the vaccine. Uh, but it, but the, the thing about this, this is it doesn't stimulate your body to actually create its own defenses. And that's what you really want. And that's the difference between a con, the antibodies just getting injected, someone else's antibodies or synthetic antibodies, and a vaccine. Because the vaccine, you actually have what they call cell-mediated response. You actually have the antigen that's being presented to the body, the body then turns on its machinery to create even more of this. And suddenly you're getting a big permanent response because you constantly have the machine turned on to producing antibodies instead of antibodies that are injected externally and then slowly decline over time. So that's the big difference between a vaccine and a monoclonal. And that's why we talked about the fact that a monoclonal antibody might be a bridge to a vaccine because they're both involving the, the, the immune system, but differently in each way. So the issue we've got with monoclonal antibodies, and I told you yesterday that I thought the trick would be to go to your doctor uh, for a loved one in the hospital, if you're in the hospital yourself, uh, and ask for the Regeneron cocktail, or the Lilly cocktail, or the AstraZeneca cocktail. They're all under clinical trials right now. Um, and see if you can get one. And a lot of these, a lot of our teaching hospitals in Michigan are, do have uh, trials that are ongoing and participating in some of these trials. The issue is, sadly, we don't have enough demand. We don't have enough supply. So I did all the math after we talked, because that was one of your questions, but I remember. And uh, basically, our demand for this, if we look at what we are anticipating demand to be for sick individuals in a hospital in, um, in, in the November, December timeframe, we think we're going to need about a million doses a month to take care of all the people and all the healthcare workers who are likely to be frontline. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we only have about 100,000 a month. Um, and, and we'll slowly scale that up. But these are biological systems. You have to ferment them. You've got to purify them. Then you've got to freeze them up. And then you've got to send them out. So it takes a long time to build up the capacity. And so you can see that we, we bought about 1.5 million doses total, uh, as, as the United States government did, uh, for you know, several billion dollars, 2.1 billion, I believe, we spent. Uh, and that's only going to be about enough uh, to, to supply about one and a half months of demand. And that's all, we've, that's all we've contracted. So we need a lot more of this. And yeah, I don't know if you remember, I, you know, the reason I put this slide up that I, that I showed you back in at a March to April time frame, Michael, is because we said, you know, watch for this convalescent plasma opportunity, monoclonal antibody cocktail opportunity. We were saying that back, you know, January, February, March. I don't know if you remember, but March, April, when we had a chance to really scale this baby up. Everyone got sidetracked by, by hydroxychloroquine. And so instead of focusing on something that might have worked, you know, it's easy to say that in hindsight now, we were, we were pretty sure as immunologists it was going to happen. 
we focused on hydroxychloroquine, you know, 70% of all of our resources went to that for the next three months, and we didn't scale up our capacity for this this uh, area that, that does look like it's going to work. Now, it's still under investigation, so we're still trying to find out whether it's really going to work or not. But uh, that that was a that was probably a that was obviously a misstep, and uh, we should have been. Right now, we only have about a tenth the amount of capacity we actually need, sadly. Uh, uh, but um, you know, hopefully, we'll start to start start to move that. There's still a lot of question about whether this monoclonal antibody stuff works. Frankly, uh, you know, the statistical significance. Uh, we've moved, we're talking about about a four percent shift overall. In, in death rates um, uh, and 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 you know long term stay hospital shifts and um, you know and that's just barely statistical significance in the case of, of Eli Lilly slightly more statistically significant in the case of Regeneron and then the question is you know which cocktails are right how many monoclonal antibodies do we really need and that all, all those things still are are still being worked out in clinical trials so we still- let me ask you now these I'm not an epidemiologist yeah. uh, you are obviously. Uh, going forward, as we develop all these variations, does the ethnicity in any way enter into it where one race might be able to accommodate one type of vaccine and another another? I, again, I don't I have no idea. Or is it one one takes care of everybody? So that's that's a great uh, uh, that's a great question. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to have to stratify the population, unlikely by ethnicity, more more by your health system, your your health situation and age. I think there's going to be you know certain uh, drugs if you're older that will be better. Um, I didn't bring my watch. I don't know how how are we doing for time. Uh, let me look here. We got uh, we got about ten minutes to go. Perfect. So I'll, let, let, let me talk a little bit about, about your personal selection, because that's going to be a, a, toward the end. Um, I will um, uh, I'll talk about, you know, kind of selecting what thing is per, uh, uh, what thing is is is, uh, is probably right for you, depending on your certification. We don't think it's going to be based on ethnicity, though. We think it's much more likely going to be based on your behavior, your exposure levels. Uh, and of course, sa- sadly, a lot of the a lot of minorities and people of color are uh, at the higher risk groups because they're they're employed uh, doing doing frontline work uh, um, much higher percentage than, 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 than whites are and um, and they also are working in more densely populated areas frequently in the cities and uh, and working in tight, at, at, at tighter quarters both at home and and on the job so we do see a, you know if you're if you're black in the country you've got a 3.6 times higher rate of death than if you're white Hmm. Uh, with this disease, so we're, we we do want to give give them preferential access to the vaccine when it becomes available because it's going to it, it should reduce death significantly for successful. But you can see I've circled the cytotoxic T cells and the helper memory helper T cells. The reason I did this is some of the some of the vaccines that are being tested are only looking at memory help, helper T cells, and I don't think that's going to be sufficient. I think they're going to need to have both the cytotoxic T cells and the memory helper T cells in. Tight, at high levels of titer in order to be able to control the uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the virus, and you can start to ask these questions uh, uh, of the media and the doctors. You know how much of a response you're getting, what your titer levels are of helper T, cytotoxic T. Those are the kind of questions we're asking all the time uh, in order to decide which vaccine is going to be better, uh, likely better or, or, or worse. And uh, and I've already gone through the idea that we've got two different ways of doing this, one with whole virus, the other with pieces of the virus. And that's how we create these, these antigens um, that, uh, that go ahead and then fight permanently. So that's the story about transitioning from antibodies to vaccines. And I think that's going to happen. Um, I think the transition, uh, we will have antibody- uh, the monoclonals out probably, you know, November, December timeframe, EUA probably at about the same rate. I'm uh, sorry, uh, uh, emergency use authorized at about the same rate. The vaccine will also be available. And I think we'll be using all these different tools uh, and our masks and all of our social distancing in concert to control the vaccine. I don't think the vaccine is going to be completely sanitizing because we won't have enough of a immune response in the first rounds. We'll find out more as time goes on. And not everyone will be eligible or even want to have the vaccine because of side effects and uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the chance of making things worse. Well, and the other thing is, in some cases, it may be multiple doses, you were saying, where you get one round, then two rounds, maybe three rounds. And just in the United States alone, that's a mil- that's a billion doses if you, everyone was going to take it, right? That's right. Yeah, we we think we're going to need uh, uh, kind of at least half a billion, uh, if not more. 
billion doses, yeah, just for the U.S. And you can see uh, uh, a great point. Here are the different ways of going after the uh, after the vac- here are the vac- vaccine, the five vaccine types, and you can see everything's related to the spike protein because that's the conferred protein. And there's a few other things attached to the spike protein that we uh, different companies are focusing on versus others. Basically, it's about whether we can get the, the spike protein, which is the one that sticks into the ACE, rece- ACE2 receptor and, and allows the vaccine to inject itself into the, into the, in, into the cell and cause, the, cause disease. And you can see, basically, there are kind of three or four areas that we look at. And you mentioned dosing, Mike. You know, um, when you look at the, uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, the uh, so this is the live attenuated virus. Here, you only need one dose. You take the, the, the live virus, and it's, it's there, and it's a big response. But there's a big safety issue. Uh, probably only about twenty, probably about eight, only eighty percent of the people can take this kind of a, 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 a of a vaccine. But it is our go to um, production is our go go to technology typically in, in the long term. And I think that it will it'll ultimately be a live attenuated virus that'll probably control the the vaccine the the, the virus the best in time. Uh, you can see that the attenuated virus that there you need to have two, maybe three, and if you're older, maybe even four doses. Uh, and, um, and that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of vaccine to take, right? The same thing's true about the DNA, DNA. Uh, we think we're going to need two plus doses again, probably maybe even three or four. If you're, if you're over 65, uh, same thing true about the viral vector. You'll need to have just one dose of the viral vector, uh, for Johnson and Johnson, two for AstraZeneca and, uh, two plus doses for the subunit spike protein. You can get a sense of the trade-off we're having between immune response and safety, right? The higher the immune response is, chances are you may have uh, also a little more safety issues, um, and uh, especially in the elderly and the high-risk populations. Um, and then you can see also in the leadership areas, the U.S. is actually, I think, in second place. Uh, the country that's in first place is China. And the reason I say this is because they've got, uh, uh, they have live, uh, they have inactivated virus, and uh, that are they're already injecting into their military. Uh, they've got uh, the, the MDNRA. They have two uh, different uh, appro- uh, approaches here. They have the access to the Pfizer vaccine and their own, and they have the spike protein, viral protein vector. Uh, that's the one that uh, Russia used in Sputnik, by the way. If that that's the adeno five uh, virus, I don't think it's going to be terribly effective, and I wouldn't take a, a Chinese or a or a um, or a uh, certainly not a Russian uh, uh, virus, and you can see at the end here we've got something that the immune response is very is quite low, but is very very safe, and that's the spike protein. Those take a lot longer to develop, and so you see that Novavax, Sanofi, GSK, uh, those companies are about six, seven, eight months behind because they had to actually synthesize all those proteins first, put them into a, a particle, and then start moving. Versus the others that just had to pull out the RNA and and, and put it into a lipid system. And you can see that, as you pointed out, Mike, you know, it's going to be different types of, you're going to have to cho- pick and choose the vaccine based on a couple different things, right? First is, is your dosing, what kind of additives are in there, more additives you got. Some of these vaccines have a thou- literally a thousand different pieces of content in them beyond mm-hmm. just the antigen. Yeah. So you, you can get a lot of allergic reaction and you don't want to have, you, know, you have to go back two, three, four times and t- time this thing. Uh, if, if you've got, if you're, if you're, especially if you're in, in a Compromised situation. The route of admission can be very, uh, administration can be very uh, important. And then, of course, our prior health history is going to be important, whether you have diabetes, whether you're predisposed, whether you have catch cancer. Uh, all those things are very important to decide which of these you want to, you want to take. The genetics, uh, male, female, especially here, uh, allergies and illness predispositions. If you're predisposed to some illnesses, you know that you don't, you really want to avoid, uh, the vaccine, the, the, the COVID at all costs, then you're going to want to take something that's a little more powerful versus if you're just trying to, uh, you know, reduce the symptoms of, of, of getting the of COVID, then, then you might want to take something a little bit weaker. And then, of course, our lifestyle, right? How much motor diet, exercise, stress, smoking, whether we're able to keep these things, the microbiome, that all affects our responses. So anyway, those are some of the things to think about. And then personally, um, We've uh, the, got one uh, minute left, by the way, Fred. One minute. So here are the things to think about. I would go to your doctor, and I'd be watching the signs and I'd ask them, 
First, was your population cohort in, in the phase three trial? If it was, that's great. Look at what happened to that population cohort. What type of technology was, 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 was is, is this care, care uh, and what kind of safety profile and efficacy profile does that technology as a whole have? Um, take a look and make sure you understand all the safety and efficacy pieces uh, of, of a virus. And for, for effectiveness, choose the one that worked in your age group and population type. If it's one or two doses, as you point out, Michael, people over 60 may have to take even more than that. Uh, your overall health and whether that's EU or FDA approved, make sure it's FDA approved. Um, and, and your personal situation, if you think you're at higher risk, then you probably want to take this drug, uh, the vaccine earlier. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, finally, if the, your community is likely to outbreak, I would take the drug, the vaccine earlier as well. But get, do get your vaccine, your flu vaccine now. So yeah. That's sort of the, what I have to say. What do you think? It's very interesting, and we'll get your slide deck up there too. With it, if you want to find out more, all of Fred's uh, various videos are at fredbrown.com, and uh, uh, he works with lots of different governments uh, around the world and lots of different states. So he's our resident expert, and we always appreciate all the information that he gives us every week. But unfortunately. We're out of time, and I know Dave has a hard stop at 3 o'clock. So let me just say thanks for joining us on MI Tech TV, and we'll, we'll be back, and hopefully Matt will be with us next week, and Fred will hopefully return and kind of update what's going on. But for now, this is Mike Brennan, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Join your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan, next Monday at 3 p.m. If you can't listen live, audio podcasts of the show can be found at podcastdetroit.com.